0: Welcome to the Washdown Podcast, episode number 70. And tonight, our guest is Laura Bratt. And Laura is the owner and clinical director of Midwest Neurofeedback. Um, She has been doing neurofeedback since 2004, um, serving the Kansas City community. Um, She holds several master's degrees. Um, We had a great time shooting this episode. I think it's very valuable information for everybody out there. Um, Check the link in the description um, if you want to know more about her or interested um, in using her services. Um, Yeah, hit that like, subscribe button, click on the bell notifications if you're watching on YouTube, and thanks for tuning in. So here's episode number 70 with Laura Bratt. Wow, I feel like we just went super deep on...
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I hope you recorded most of what I said, because I sounded smart for like half a second there.
1: I can't let people know you sound smart. I didn't record it. Oh, uh-oh. thank God. That's going to be edited out. <laughs> yeah. Well, thankfully, I do all the editing, oh. so...
0: <laughs> we joked last time about me just green-screening him out somehow. Oh. I not figured that out yet, but I may have to pay for a program for that. Still working on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Laura, thank you for coming on the show. Really appreciate it.
2: My pleasure. No. I'm happy to be here.
0: Um, let's move the mic just a little bit closer to your face there. want to make sure that we, you can extend it up a little bit if you need to. to there you go. Yeah. want to make sure that you're really heard. Mm. So we do have every now and then issues with.
1: We'd rather hear you over Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. So why why don't we start with with letting everybody know who you are, what you do, and let us know kind of how you got into neurofeedback, the field that you're in. Okay.
2: Jeremy, I thought you were just going to read that horrible bio I had to put together. Oh, I I I did read that bio <laughs> okay.
0: and it was probably one of the best ones that I've received. Oh no. Oh no. Oh
2: no.
0: So, but the the purpose for the bio, why I ask everybody to send one is whenever I'm doing the um, episode description in YouTube and on the other platforms that we distribute on. So I have something to put on there that's not just, hey, we talked about this and this and this. It's more of who the guest is. So that kind of, because I'm kind of that way whenever I'm watching podcasts or something, I will watch for a a specific guest on different episodes or if it's somebody that is in a field that i want to know about that's how i kind of pick what i'm watching okay so okay got it got it so yeah
2: okay so me um let's see so my background is i have a master's degree in counseling psychology um from texas tech i did a lot of psychologically minded jobs. I worked. Um, let's see. I worked in a rural school district in Texas. I worked locked and open psychiatric units um, in Miami, Florida. I worked chemical dependency units. I worked physical rehab. Um, worked in women's clinics. Um, Chemical sales, a variety of different jobs um, that were more psychologically minded. And then I um, had some kids, and then some more kids, and then <laughs> some more kids. They just kept coming. Um, and I was um, thinking I was ready to get back into the, the workspace. And my husband went and took a CEU thing on... Neurofeedback, and I thought I don't know what that is. And he calls me um, from—he was, I think, in Colorado for that first one. And he calls me and he says, "Whoa, this is pretty weird." And I said, "Well, is it interesting?" "Oh yeah, it's really interesting." "Well, good. That's that's good for CEOs." And then he calls me the next night and he goes, "Whoa, I don't know what happened, but I feel really weird." And he says, I'm not tracking. Something's kind of off. And I said, well, you need to go talk to whoever's presenting. And he talks to the presenter the next day, and they do something different. And he calls me, and he says, okay, we're doing this. And I said, well, I'm not even sure I'm ready to go back to work yet. (laughs) Anyway, that was the very beginning. And he came home, and he's trying to talk me into it. And it took about a year um, because it just looked weird. You know, um, and I just didn't want to go back and do straight counseling. I was just burned out. Um, It wasn't fast enough for me either. So he talked me into it. I went to a training, and he went with me to that training. He wanted a a review. And it was a real interesting experience for me because frequently when you do neurofeedback, the first time you do it, there's not really a dramatic effect typically. Typically. And both he and I were kind of the exceptions. And we spent probably, um, it was during the training, you hook each other up and you run each other with neurofeedback. And I guess an explanation of neurofeedback is, is due. Um, it's biofeedback for the brain. We can talk more about that in a second. But anyway... Um, somebody, my partner in the training had run me. And, um, and then afterwards, my husband, I went back in and he asked me to train him. And I was really nitpicky and kind of irritable with him. And I, I wasn't mad or anything. And he finally turned to me and he said, just get the hell away from me. I don't know what your deal is. Just go away. I'll do it myself. And I thought, "Whoa, that was weird. And I thought, I am kind of bitchy. What's going on? And um, we sat, he and I, in the bar for the next hour and a half trying to figure out what was going on. And at that end of the hour and a half, I thought, whoa, I, I got it. All my life I had lived in this state of really low arousal. I'm talking about my nervous system. And that training had really highly activated my nervous system. But I didn't know what that felt like. The only time I ever felt like that was when I was angry. And so that's what I was. But I wasn't really angry. My nervous system was just highly activated. But I didn't know any other association with it other than, oh, this is what angry feels. Which just kind of like my world just like exploded. Because it was like, whoa, you can do this to people? And and You can feel different, and things can change that fast. So that was my introduction into the neurofeedback world.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a, I mean, yeah, that's a pretty big reaction for the first time. Yeah. But then being able to notice it, too, and pinpoint it, I mean, that's pretty awesome. I'd spent
2: most of my life analyzing myself, so noticing it was not a big deal. Well,
0: you know, I'm sure we had conversations about it, but uh, for the most part, first responders don't spend a whole lot of time analyzing their emotions. And it probably leads to a lot of the problems that we have. So that's why I say what I said. Right, right. So give us a quick overview on neurofeedback and then we can... Just jump right in.
2: Okay. So um, there's many different forms of biofeedback. Neurofeedback is one type of biofeedback. And biofeedback is feeding information back to the brain and the body in order to make changes. That's basically it. So you might change temperature, like skin temperature. Based on biofeedback information, um, you might ch- you can use it for muscle response. You can use it for sweat response, for heart response. Um, neurofeedback is specific to to brain, so you're giving the brain information about itself in order to make changes. So you, we use EEG technology, electroencephalographic technology. So we attach sensors to various spots on the head, which differs for what we're whatever we're looking for. Um, and those sensors pick up the signal, send it through an amp, and then into the software. And the software gives us a raw EEG signal, just like you'd see if you went in and got a sleep study. And then our software allows us to break that signal up into various waves, and typically We're looking at delta, which is consistent with sleep, theta, which is consistent with a hypnagogic state, Um, alpha, consistent with relaxation, beta, SMR, SMR is sensory motor rhythm, that's um, more um, awake, alert, on task brainwave patterns, and then the fastest rhythm we're typically dealing with is fast beta or high beta, which is a much faster rhythm. Should have brought a picture of the waves, right?
1: <laughs> We're firefighters. We appreciate pictures. Yeah.
2: <laughs> we all appreciate pictures. So, um, and neurofeedback, um, it it can address many different things. So if you say, well, what do you use it for? Well, ADHD or any number of attentional things. Um PTSD, trauma, headaches, migraine, anxiety, depression, um, spasmodic dysphonia, misophonia, tinnitus, um, TBI, head injuries, things like that. Um, But the one thing all those things have in common is dysregulated brainwave activity. And the only thing that neurofeedback is capable of doing is neuroregulation. So, regulating the nervous system. So, when you have increased regulation, you have decreased symptoms. Now, uh, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> I was like, I was waiting for that. I was like, well, how does it do it? Then I was like, oh, it decreases. Gotcha.
2: It's also used, we're. Our focus is more on pathological kinds of things, but neurofeedback has really exploded in the athletic world for artists and athletes, primary athletes. It's, um, I mean, any famous athletes that you know of, they're doing some kind of neurofeedback now. Um, I don't know how many years ago, but when um, India got its first gold medal, which we could probably google that or something and it was something like downhill skiing or something that i thought was wild um i was super excited because a colleague um called me and told me of another colleague of ours that had done neurofeedback with them which i thought was like yeah so that was like really cool
0: Mm -hmm. makes sense i mean whenever whenever i was studying for the captain's test i mean That was the time that I was coming to see you, and it made a difference. I mean, it made a
1: huge difference. So walk me through those that are primarily listening to our podcast, so firefighters, police officers, nurses, paramedics. If someone were to come to you or were to seek out this treatment for, like, PTS or PTSD, what what are results, what are we looking for, how does it impact and make that improvement on them?
2: So generally, if you're walking in with that diagnosis, um, a lot of the stuff you're struggling with, one of the big things is going to be sleep issues, right? Um, potentially some anxiety, maybe thought racing, maybe difficulty quieting the mind, um, certainly attentional issues because of all those other things I just mentioned, um, maybe depression, um, panic attacks, um, certainly an inability to quiet the nervous system, difficulty self-soothing, potentially overuse, misuse of various substances, just to quiet the nervous system. Um, So those are some of the things, right? And all of those are very typical symptoms of a highly activated nervous system. So the goal of the neurofeedback is to regulate, probably in that case, down-regulate regulate. So the o- almost system.
1: opposite of what it did to you initially, then correct? Right. Okay.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Because that was I when you were telling that story, I was like, "Well, how does this work?" Because I was like, "Don't we kind of want to <laughs> quiet yeah. it instead of make it?"
2: Not for everybody. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
1: And what does a a typical session or a treatment period look like is it a is it an hour thing is it a
2: day thing a week thing so um the actual training might be nine minutes long i mean it can be really short there are very sensitive people that we see um that can tolerate six or nine minutes And that's about max for that moment. Now it takes time for you to come in and, and I want to know how'd it go from the last time I saw you, you know, what, what did you notice? What did you not notice? What was different? Um, and then there's the hookup. Then there's the actual training. Um, and your training is you're watching a, um, a game. It's, it's kind of like a lousy video game right i wouldn't say lousy i mean it is
0: probably about circa 1987 (laughs) so if you're a big fan of mario brothers then or asteroid you're gonna you're gonna be just happy but if you're you know you want to play call of duty or something that's that's not it
2: (laughs) Nope, nope nope um so it's um so the, the goal is to make the game go. And as you're, you're, as the game goes, you hear a beeping sound. My husband used to affectionately call it the machine that goes beep. <laughs> Which is cute, right? Yeah. Um, but the goal is to keep the beeps going. And as you... Um, I've got you hooked up, and I'm changing the parameters. So if you're getting too many beeps, I make the game harder. If you're not getting enough beeps, I ease up on it a little bit. And I'm constantly following what you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So the goal is to get some relatively consistent beeps, and the beep is the reward to your brain that it's on the right path. Oh, it's almost like breadcrumbs. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Think Hansel and Gretel, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now is this a like a once a week treatment plan, or like I hate to say treatment plan, but like once a week type thing, or is it a monthly thing?
2: So um, we used to do it once a week. Not anymore. Okay. There's a synergistic effect that we get from twice a week that we don't get from once a week. And just doing it in a private practice, um, people need to see fairly quickly that they're getting some results. Because if not, you're not going to stick with it. You're not going to put out the money. You're not going to make the time. You're not going to make the trip. Um, So we basically require twice a week at the beginning. Generally, once we get about 8 to 12 sessions in, usually by about 10 sessions, we expect and hope to see some positive changes. Once there's some solid positive change, it, it might not be that your sleep is perfect, but it might be that used to take you an hour to fall asleep and now you're asleep in 20 minutes. That's a big positive change. So once we're seeing some positive shift, you can cut back to once a week, but not prior to that. Now, is
1: this a maintainable thing? Like, if you don't do it, you lose it? Or do you get to a point to where you've reached said goals, treatment can stop?
2: So, we do want to stop because there's a long waiting list. And um, that was kind of one of my things with traditional psychotherapy for me um, was I wanted to help people get better faster. Because I like the variety of seeing lots of different people, and there's a lot of, especially now, um, there's a lot of need. And so the goal is to get you in, get you to a place where you're feeling pretty good, and you are objectively better than you are, and kick you out the door. Um, the whole point is you're training the brain. So, what we're doing is encouraging other new pathways um, to yield better movement through your life, so you shouldn't need neurofeedback forever. Um, the one group that I would say, in my experience, that, um, that's kind of a, an exception are people where dementia's already started. Yeah. And in those folks, um, in my experience, what I've seen is we can help them get to a pretty good maintenance place, but they need to come in like every eight weeks. It's the, the trainings don't hold um, like they do in just about everybody else. There are some, um, there's some neurodegenerative conditions where there's a lot of gut issues and those endocrine systems aren't working properly or the neurofeedback doesn't hold for as long as it should.
1: Are we, you kind of at least elaborate a little bit to my next question. Are we seeing like an ideal age range for this type of training? Like is it best between like 18 to 25 or is it 18 to 60? But you kind of elaborated that we're seeing obviously some geriat- geriatric type treatments with those that may be developing Alzheimer's or Something like that. Is do we see like a prime age or
2: No. Okay. No. Um the youngest we've worked with is four. Um the oldest I've worked with is ninety one. That's pretty <laughs> now the ninety one year olds, um, 87, 91, um the ninety one was fully intact. The eighty seven year old, um, he had some dementia. He had a old head injury. And he had some lifelong depression, which was probably secondary to the head injury. And some dementia had already started. And with him specifically, he needed to come in about every eight weeks. The 91-year-old was in much better shape.
1: What do we see, obviously, with the 4-year-old still has a lot of brain development to go compared to a 25-year-old? What are you looking for with someone that has so much development still to go versus someone where development's pretty well plateaued?
2: I don't follow.
1: Like, what? What would be the purpose of a treatment in a four-year-old?
2: Um, so typically, when we see kids that young coming in, they're either autistic or okay. on the spectrum, or there's a number of—I don't know why this just seems like a weird thing now. Um, there's a number of four-year-olds I've seen that get kicked out of preschool. What? Yeah, you'd be amazed at the number of kids getting kicked out of preschool. Uh, (laughs) Obviously, James knows better than we do.
1: Apparently, (laughs) yeah. She said that and I was just like... (laughs) I didn't
0: even go to preschool, so...
1: (laughs) I didn't for very long.
0: (laughs) It was straight to kindergarten for me. I don't
1: even think preschool was an option. Now... Like you what smart my, yeah small town so <laughs> why I guess why are they are we looking at violence issues outburst type issues secondary to being on the spectrum that's causing these dismissals from preschool then or what Cause I feel like preschools would be a little more tolerant now versus maybe twenty years ago yeah
2: I'm not sure about that Okay. Um, so uh, those. Those kids, I don't think, were really on the spectrum. I think there was probably some developmental trauma, um, potentially some PTSD, PTS that hadn't been diagnosed yet. But there were typically, like, violent outbursts and um, inappropriate behaviors and just literally leaving. They were flight risk. So, and he's... Kids had just highly activated nervous systems, very dysregulated, unable just to maintain any semblance of of normal flow.
1: Was there any commonalities you saw as far as like a death of a parent or a move or a sexual abuse or anything like that that were usually leading to those?
2: Um, like common threads between those kids. Mm-hmm. No, not necessarily. Okay. Nothing that was... Sometimes, yes, but not all the time. Sometimes um, when I take histories, um, maybe birth trauma, that wasn't considered birth trauma by anybody there. I mean, the parents didn't consider it a birth trauma or anything like that. But there's, you know... Pause.
1: We're back. (laughs) Um. So kind of what we had discussed a little bit ago, one of the reasons um, the whole conversation kind of started with Jeremy and I, and I forgot what guest it was, and then it kind of bled over to Rachel and I was picking her brain out a little bit. One of the biggest commonalities we've had with all the first responders and healthcare workers that we've had on here is they have traced their desire to help usually back to an instance or a group of situations where not that they were wrong, but they were hurt. They experienced trauma. Um, and it was all the desire of, I don't want that to ever happen to anybody. I want to be the fixer of the situation cause I was unable to fix it myself. Um, it's no secret that suicides in our career fields are continuing to increase. Um, and so we reasonably, I, you know, kind of take a step back and we're saying, What's going on here? Like are we and it was kind of a hard question, are we the right people to be doing this job? Should someone that experienced trauma as a young child continue experiencing it on a daily basis for 30 plus years in a career later in life in an attempt to solve said earlier trauma? And it, it, you know, I kind of asked Jeremy, I said, are, are we the right people to be doing this? Is it realistic to expect our poor little brains to sustain
2: all of that without
1: without make ever making an attempt to properly heal or properly fix or address the issue.
2: So my first thought was, <laughs> if you guys don't do it, then who are we going to get to do it? Because you think there's like normal people out there? <laughs>
0: Wow, thanks.
2: <laughs> and that was... You guys I, are I, already
0: jacked up, so you just keep doing it. No.
2: That's not at all what I meant.
0: That's not what I all. heard. Okay. That's going okay. in the video description, by the way, too. That's...
2: Okay. so let me clarify that, because obviously that came out wrong. Is it... I knew what you are saying. I don't know if you do. I can't trust that now. Um... That that comes from me thinking that most of us are already jacked up.
0: No, that's a fair point.
2: That it it not not what you said. Yes.
0: I know. (laughs) Hey, you've seen the episodes, you know that we joke around. So (laughs) Okay, okay. Just But no, I mean it's it that's a fair point of it doesn't matter who you are, most people are gonna experience traumatic events throughout their life and most people are gonna at least during childhood sometime i don't know anybody that didn't have you know if you even break it down to the simplest things of like a death of a grandparent or something like that that typically happens or you're going to see something traumatic so to say you know oh well if you've experienced trauma then you can't get into this career field it's i mean you're kind of just x and everybody out you know
2: now to be fair um so this is just an example i use if you have two little kids in the grocery store okay and this little kid's with mom and mom goes to the next aisle over and this little kid's in the cereal aisle um and doesn't you know looks up and doesn't see mom there's two kids and they they can respond very differently one kid could be real curious and start climbing up to try to get to that cereal on the top shelf and, and not really concerned or worried that mom's gone, just like, oh, this is my chance to get that, you know, the Crunch Berries on top or something. The other kid turns around and see mom's not there, total meltdown. Screaming, crying, just immobilized. Two kids, same age, same sex, but vastly different responses to the exact same thing one of them has a trauma response the other one doesn't so probably not everybody but i was thinking um have you ever talked to a bunch of psychiatrists and find out their backgrounds
0: I try to avoid those conversations yeah. <laughs> i'm sure they do yeah. too <laughs>
2: So I know um, one of my favorite sayings is, is mental health is not a hotbed of mental health, right? So people that go into mental health, I'll speak specifically for myself. I didn't come from a healthy background. I came from a lot of tremendous dysfunction. That's why I do the work I do. So probably not too different than you guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See,
0: you're making my point for me.
2: There you go. There you go. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah, what was,
1: I had something else and I lost it. It, uh, so here's my question. Why? Why did you do it? Why did you go into this, like you just said, it was full of dysfunction. Why this?
2: I, um, I was headed for medical school, um, Hated chemistry, took a psych class and thought, whoa, I can really figure myself out. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, I don't know. It was just, I I just knew that's where I needed to be. You know, sometimes intuitively, you just know what you know, but you don't know why. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The work that I do today, I have zero doubts. Um, I am doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. Exactly. I've never felt that way about anything in my life. Um, I question when I say something to my kids and go, oh, that was really stupid or shouldn't have said that. K- Should have kept your mouth shut there. But at work, I, I am so certain that I am doing exactly what I need to be doing. I don't have that kind of surety in anything. I don't know. Do you guys...
1: I- I feel the same way, and but I just I can't help but sit back and wonder. Well, I know why, but it's just if with everything you look at, it's I've just almost kind of fed the negative things that have happened. Like so, just a little bit about my backstory. My mom, my I'd say my first big, and this was actually what's led to some of the discussion too. My first big trauma for me was when my mom was murdered when I was ten. Um within 2 weeks i was put stuck sent to you know this is what 2000 the year 2000 so i was in ptsd counseling it was a once a week thing and i from i was there from 2000 to 2007 so 7 years basically when i was 10 till i was 17 and i hated it <laughs> like it just it was a lot of like you know, for the first kind of four years, there was toys or whatnot, and I was like, "I yeah, I'll play with the toys. And they're like, hey, you need to pay attention. I'm like, but there's toys. <laughs> I don't want to pay attention. There are toys. <laughs> you know, and then, like, kind of through puberty and stuff, I came more of the anger towards it. Like, this is stupid. This is a waste of my time. We've been talking about this for the last four years. Like, why do we have to be here? And then finally, when I was 17, I essentially threw a big enough fit that I was, like, I'm done. I'm going to do sports, hang out with friends. And my grandparents were just kind of like, whatever. I Because I was raised by my grandparents. Um, and then for me, kind of in college, I think I was 21 or 22, I just noticed, especially, I guess, in maintenance of relationships with those around me, I was just like, I'm not doing the best. Maybe I should go to counseling. Did it for like maybe a year, and I was like, yeah, that's dumb. Waste of time. And then it was finally when I was. Twenty-four, twenty-five, with almost a basically a suicide attempt, where I ended up inpatient. Where it all just kind of, then then it hit. I I had uh, went back and reviewed the case file of my mom. Saw crime scene photos and stuff that I had never oh seen before, God. and then it hit. And I was like, oh, <laughs> and at the time I like. I was still mildly inconvenienced by being inpatient psych, but it, <clears throat> I don't think meds were ever going to be a full-time thing for me, but it definitely, while I was there, gave me the clarity to start developing better coping mechanisms. Um, so it, it, it did have its function, its purpose, and it served it well, but I I kind of wonder if... Maybe my, and I I don't fault my grandparents. They're very old school. You know, whatever the doctor says is what we do. The whole questioning of medicine was just not a thing for them. And I I, I sat back and just wondered, like, if I've waited maybe a year or two years or three years or not done it at all, what my brain development would have been like. Because it wasn't even until I was, started dating my ex-wife, who's a clinical social worker. And, you know, I learned, I actually learned about physical brain development with trauma that I was just like. Huh, I wonder if things would have been done differently. What the outcome could have been. Worse, better, same.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, that, and then that's where we got on the discussion of like, are we even the right people for this job? You know, like, hey, here's all this trauma. And then it's, hey, 30 years every day. Get at it. Go. You know, with the way brains develop, if this wasn't a good career choice for the brain development. So...
2: So I know that was a lot. <laughs> it, it was a lot. It was a lot. Um, you know what you guys do, though, is is layering the traumas, right? Mm-hmm. So that's not ideal, um, especially if there's no, and I don't know, but I suspect there's not really good solid programs that are um, actually helping in dealing with that so that you're increasing brain resilience because that's what you need.
0: Yeah, I would say conservatively, we're probably 20 years behind where we need to be with that. There's Strides have been made, and it's been more recognized, but it's the same problem with everything else. It's time, money, and personnel. So... Yeah. We see, we recognize there's a problem. So we need to put a program in place. Okay. Well, we have an idea for a program, but now we have to pay for it. Now we need the personnel to run the program. So it's, I mean, you, I mean, you know, as well as I do, especially dealing with, you know, you work with veterans and seeing those people come back with TBI and things like that. I mean, we were in Afghanistan and Iraq in 2001 and stuff and, they weren't even recognizing the TBI stuff until when, two thousand ten, two
1: thousand fifteen. I know, just just alone, we didn't even start concussion protocol for football in college till two thousand ten or eleven. Yeah, you know, like and at the time it was just like, Hey, um do this little like card game test real quick. It's just basically to see if you have a concussion or whatever. And now it's just look where we've come in the last twelve years. Yeah, it's,
2: and we're not where we should be, Mm-mm. because there's people walking into my office now that have come from the ER. And the ER said, "Yeah, you have a mild concussion." Well, the kid's still in his room a week later, not able to go to school, and needing all the lights out.
0: Yeah, that's not a mild concussion.
1: I mean, I, I'm you and I are of the generation where they're like clear concussions and you're back in in the next play
0: (laughs) there was no concussion protocol whenever i was in high school and college i mean there were times like there's several basketball games i don't remember the second half of i mean
2: and that's a huge setup for doing the work that you guys do is layering the trauma on top of the tbi Mm -hmm. yeah
1: i'm you know you made you talked about the word resiliency and it I feel like there is a healthy and unhealthy resiliency, though. Um, I wanted to pick your brain on it because when I think of resiliency, I think of, unfortunately, experiencing death at such a young age. I've noticed my empathy lack more and more into this career. It's another dead body. It's another cardiac arrest. It's another person shot. And my emotion, like, Families I, I've I've used to think that families were getting more and more dramatic, but I think I've just become more and more desensitized to it. To the point to where what used to be here like my empathy is matching your sadness, it's kind of just went two different directions. And I wouldn't call it healthy. But that's, Yeah, that's not healthy.
0: <laughs> so I mean there's obviously a line and of professionalism that you need to have. Yeah. But Yeah, I think if it stops affecting you, then...
1: And it's not so much necessarily even the initial, like, on-scene, like, hey, shut up, stop crying. It's not that. It's just the, I recover a lot quicker from it. Like, I can clear a scene and go right back to doing whatever I was doing without being affected at all. And that's where I wonder, like, is that needed for our career? Like, do you have to be able to flip... We talk all the time about flipping different switches in order to get a job done. Is that a healthy t- switch to flip? I don't, I don't know. That's why I brought you on cuz you're smarter than us.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> um I so I I wouldn't answer that question cuz I think that would probably be better answered by you guys. Um but I that's not how I would define brain resiliency.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't define it as resiliency either. Okay. Um, I mean, that would almost be like compartmentalization in the wrong way. That'd be like half of compartmentalization, which is what they taught us for a long time of you put your feelings in a box and you can have them back when you go home. You know, you don't have feelings at work. And so that's where you can kind of get into trouble of, yeah, you're, we're going from call to call to call, and you're just storing all of this stuff. You're not ever dealing with it. So to sit there and say that it doesn't affect you, that's just not true. It's it like we're layering on layering.
1: Yeah. On a daily basis, we're layering. Yeah, until— and year to year, we're layering. Yeah.
0: And, but you're layering with no structural support. Yeah, So you're building on a foundation of sand or as the, you know, my analogy I like to use is a leaky cardboard box. You're just stuffing a whole bunch of crap in there. Eventually that cardboard box is going to break and then you're going to be right back to square one.
1: Or worse. Yeah. So what do we do? We've talked a lot about problems. We've kind of identified all these things. We're like, man, this needs changed. Is neurofeedback the solution? Is it a solution? Like... What do we do?
2: So, you know, one of the things, um, because I've been doing this a while, um, and I've seen a lot of people, and I've seen a lot of people across the age range, and I've seen a lot of change since COVID, too. That's that's a whole other layer. Um, But one of the things, well, there's numerous things I've noticed, but one of the things I've noticed is... um, I see a lot of college students, high school, college-age students. And one of the things that that, that I am aw- become aware of is um, their lack of what I would call just general resiliency. Of not being able to tolerate being sad, being mad, being upset, being anxious over things that are basically kind of normal parts of living. And walking around with an expectation that I'm supposed to be happy, joyous, and free twenty four seven, and so I don't know how that became like a thing, but it's it is a thing. So so that's a problem. Is what does normal life look like, and and having feelings is a part of life, and we need to learn how to move through those feelings. Um. That just is, is something. That's one of the things I think we need to do. Um, two of my three kids are teachers. And it annoys me, um, the curriculum. Because there's so much stuff that's being taught that's not really usable stuff. And there's a lot of stuff that's not being taught that they really need. Um, so I think educationally, somewhere... If it's not taught in the home, it should be taught in school. It should be taught both about just normal processing of feelings. How do you talk to a friend? How do you handle? My daughter um, works in the KCK school district with third graders. And the the issues and the problems that a lot of these kids have at home is just appalling. The amount of trauma that these kids bring to their classroom daily My daughter is my kid, so she's really well educated on this stuff. But she is not provided, and this is KCK, and it's it's a really good, solid school system. But they are not; they have a trauma sensitive system, but it's not at all, and it's it's appalling to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, that's I've made that point several times of. Well, you know, the sense of entitlement and then not like, like you said, I'm supposed to be happy and stuff all the time. And
1: well, we've done know. it to ourselves. Like, like, as she was saying that, I was thinking, you know, yeah, we don't really have to work through sadness because I can pull this out and find 20 different things on that'll make me happy and just push that sadness to the back burner and I don't have to address it. Or, you know, how many times do we. You don't see a lot of people on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, sharing the sad stories, sharing the sad photos. It's, look what I bought, look what I've done, look where I'm at, look what I've been doing. Happy, 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 woohoo! Mm-hmm. But we're not going to talk about the sad shit. That's not going to get likes. That's not going to get attention.
2: Unless it's suicide.
1: But even that only lasts for a while. That's true. Yeah, You know, like... Yeah,
0: well, I mean, it's, that's the story of the boy who cried wolf. You know, you say, I'm going to do it so many times, and then everybody, you know, mm-hmm. they're real sympathetic and stuff the first five times. But then that sixth time, that seventh time, that eighth time, it's like, jeez. I mean, you
1: know, and I bet, like, <coughs> I bet there's a good chunk of people that probably couldn't even tell you how Robin Williams died right now. Unfortunately. Probably. It's been that far removed. We don't talk about it. They just know that he's a really funny actor. His parents watched his movies. They don't know how he died. Yeah. And it's, sad. so yeah, like, suicide, we'll all, you know, we'll want to start a GoFundMe, we'll rally around, we'll do all these different things, and then we'll move it on. But look at my cool travel photos. <laughs> yeah. It just, it's always kind of bugged me. Well,
0: and that's the, I mean, yeah, I sound like a damn broken record, but that's the problem with social media, is because that's what people see. And we are now seeing a whole generation of people come into maturity who they've social media has been there the whole time for them. Whereas for you and me and even you to a most extent, it, it wasn't a thing until you were older. So the developing brains, and maybe you could shed some light on that of the, you know, just the constant inundated of clicking and clicking and clicking and seeing that stuff. Um, I did, can't remember oh it was with uh watched a podcast earlier today with uh michael rosenboom he played lex Luthor on smallville and he had zachary levi on and his podcast they it's all celebrities and stuff but they talk about mental health quite a bit Mm. um and zachary levi was talking about you know the because he was having to take some meds and stuff and he started out with a ssri but then moved once they fine-tuned everything to something that was a dopamine thing and he was talking about dopamine and you know it's that reward thing Mm -hmm. of I see this I like it I see this I like it I you know and the click and click and click and then if I post this and then I get a bunch of likes like every like that's a little dopamine hit you know so I wonder how much like what that does especially to kids who's you know we know the brain doesn't fully develop until you're in your 20s and you got kids as young as I don't know how young, you know, as two
2: on electronics.
1: Yeah, yeah. on electronics. Well, and that's I don't know how. I and I hate. i hate to just resort to the old narrow-minded, soft-ass kids back in my day thought. Because I, I try to stay away from that. But back in my day, you know, I like,
0: can't help it. Yeah, I don't want to say it, but I'm gonna. Yeah.
1: I I think about, like, when I would go out in public with my grandparents, right? Like, we would go to a restaurant. Three-, four-, five-year-old me would do what every three-, four-, five-year-old would do. Crawl all over shit, play with my food. Just typical kid stuff. But there was a correction of the behavior. Now I see more and more a distraction from the behavior. Play on your iPad. Play with my phone. Where... And so, like, I just, I I think about, you know, brain development. If there's never a, if you don't ever touch the stove to know it's hot, how do you know it's hot? And then all of a sudden, a 17-year-old burns himself on a stove while he never touched one.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, and that goes back to even what I was just saying. that's, it's so, like, counterintuitive because they're, you know, they're misbehaving, basically. They want that piece of electronics, though. And if they misbehave, they
1: get it. So then you're just reinforcing negative behavior. What are we seeing with the brain, with the, say neurofeedback was a thing 30 years ago, 20 years ago. It was. (laughs) 20 before Game Boys were invented. Or 30 before, you know, Game Boys and other mainstream electronics were invented. Is it counterintuitive or is it actually helpful? When we're talking about stimulus and electronics and... I, you know, there are, in all fairness, there are, you know, the kids' games that are problem-solving, matching shapes, colors, things like that. It's a lot easier to pack that in a phone versus a whole toy set that we would have growing up. Right. Is, is it helping? Is it hurting? Or what's You're it talking like? about
2: video games?
1: Just Yeah, just video games, phones, iPads for kids younger and younger now.
2: So, there's a, I, there's a lot of qualifiers that go with that. Number one... The age of the brain, right? Do you have a four-year-old or you have a sixteen-year-old? Um, there was um, there was a book that came out; it's old now, called "Boys Adrift." Does that ring a bell? No. Um, really fascinating. Maybe ten years ago, um, book, but he—I can't even think of the author's name. But he was. Um, Looked at some studies where they were looking about the effects of video games, and one of the things that they noticed was there was some there were some games that were actually enhancing for eye hand coordination and certain skill sets. In fact, they had neurosurgeons playing some of the um, some of those games because it was peak performance training. But the first person shooter games, what they found out was, and the, they had them. What was that game my kids, my boys? Really. Grand Theft Auto, when those came out.
0: I can't think of any redeeming quality of that game. <laughs> right?
2: May, may or may not right? have <laughs> Yeah. So, um, and I think it was some of those games. Anyway, um, what happened was, was just what you were describing, and they had, I think, like 12-year-old boys, and the, um, I think it's the nucleus accumbens, if I'm not mistaken, would, would Get a a hit, you're like a dopamine head every time there was a kill, and if you're playing a video game like that, you're getting lots of kills, right? Especially if you're really good and really well practiced on it. The brain wasn't designed to do that, and in this, he was describing how the the um, consistent playing of first person shooter games actually had a somewhat effect of burning out left prefrontal cortex. One of the things at the left prefrontal cortex is motivation. And so then he was talking about that being the precursor to the thirty year old moving back into mom and dad's living in the basement and brilliant person, but the failure to launch mm-hmm. syndrome being a result or a partial result of that. So
1: I I'm curious. We we talked about like the likes on the social media or the the kill it is the reward for what we're doing here's our objective the like the kill whatever that is the reward mm-hmm. how is that different from the beep
2: well the beep's not elicit- eliciting a dopamine effect okay number 1 um so in the
1: why is it not like what what makes the beep different than because like you said, the brain is trying to, it's following the breadcrumbs, it's following the beep. How is that different from...
2: So you're asking why, what is it about the beep that's so reinforcing? I haven't a clue. Yeah. Hmm. I can't answer that.
1: Because I, I think of just, you know, goal-oriented, like, as you go through, I got, you know, you want the beep. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's, um, and there's there's a visual reward, too, is because the game is going. And if you're not getting the beep, the game is stalling, which nobody wants. Yeah. Right? But you don't have to do neurofeedback with a the beep. There's, um, I don't use it, but some of my staff use a, a movie. So you're watching the movie, and if you're not producing what, we're asking you to produce the way we've set the parameters up. The movie goes black. And so it, it has to, to bring the movie back, you have to get back into that place where you're producing what we're asking the brain to produce. So it doesn't have to be a beep. Okay. That's just the one I'm used to.
1: What have we seen? It's, We hear a lot of lay people talk about it, but I'm interested from the clinical perspective. You know, we hear a lot about over-medication in children, especially for me, like in the 90s, like we threw Ritalin at everything we thought was ADHD. Um,
2: That's not past tense.
1: Okay. (laughs) Don't talk about that past (laughs) tense,
2: because it's clear and present right now.
1: What are we seeing with brain development with that?
2: Hmm. So. Um, or just any
1: early medication in children in general over anything. How, how is that affecting brain development?
2: So that's a really good question. Um, I'm probably not the best person to answer that. you um, smarter than us. Um, <laughs> I am exceedingly biased. So just give that to you up front. I'm exceedingly biased. Um, I'm not a huge proponent of medication use. Um, I grew up in a house with, with addiction. And so part of my bias is anti-drugs. Well, Um, I'm,
0: I'll just go ahead and tell you my position too. I'm pretty much anti-medication myself, unless it's a documented chemical imbalance. Like, I mean, I think there's a need for it in some people, but for a majority of people, I think it's not needed. There's other avenues that can get you to where you need to be.
1: It's always felt to me like it's kind of kicking the can down the road, especially in, in the 90s when we didn't have the technology to observe things that we do now oh, well, my kid's doing this, my kid's misbehaving, my kid's acting this way, my kid, my kid, my kid. Well, let's throw medication at to fix that problem without the thought of, is this a long-term med? Is this a short-term med? What are long-term effects down the road?
2: Or what's the source of the problem?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Exactly.
0: And And that's the thing with me. I'm a what's the source of the problem guy. Yeah. Find out exactly what it is. It's just like anything else medical. Like, I'm not going to have shoulder surgery if I break my leg. So, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah,
2: yeah. Now, 50 years ago, um, we didn't have the kind of technology that we have now. But we have technology to read brain waves or to look at brains. It's not accessible to everybody yet. Um but throwing a drug that affects brain activity without being able to see and really be able to diagnose the problem just sounds like poor medicine to me. Agreed. Um, my opinions are not popular I'm around a lot of the psychiatrists and much of the <clears throat> medical community. Um, I don't think drugs should ever be the first line when you're talking about um, psychologically related issues i just don't i think they're the the last resort i think if you've tried everything else um you said earlier um is neurofeedback the answer um i think it's a piece of the answer there should be neurofeedback equipment in every classroom in every part of this country You can just do basic neurofeedback and build up resilience and regulate nervous systems as just a part of the the day, right after lunch. It, 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 It just makes sense. Why aren't we building up our resilience to life and all its stressors so that we can all handle things just a little bit better?
1: One of the reasons I've never been a big fan of medication, so let's look at high blood pressure meds, for example, right? You have high blood pressure. You take the meds to not have high blood pressure. If you don't take those meds, you go back to just the same high blood pressure you had. Nothing's changed. You just have high blood pressure again. Right. When we look at like SSRIs, for example, especially with those people that take them inconsistently, sometimes just due to lack of money, lack of access, whatever it may be. Or because
0: they're feeling better and then they get off because they don't need them anymore. Exactly.
1: All of a sudden we, I feel like the fallout from improperly taking those is 10 times worse than just stopping your blood pressure meds. We're like to the point that we see other mental diagnoses develop and that, that's scary to me. Like I don't just go back to the same problems I was before, especially if I take them inconsistently, my highs and my lows are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. It, that doesn't sound like a very good med to me, or a, or a very good treatment solution. No.
2: I want to tell you a story. Okay. So, um, I went, my oldest son went to Grinnell College, little tiny school in Grinnell, Iowa. Mm-hmm.
0: I played them in basketball. Did you really? Sure did.
2: Oh, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Did you go to Grinnell?
0: Uh, no, I went okay. to another school, Bernard okay. College. So.
2: Okay, cool. So, I went to Grinnell to go visit him and stayed at a bed and breakfast and the woman that ran the bed and breakfast her husband was the local physician he was the head physician of the 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 practice in this small little town of 9,000 people and so we start talking at breakfast and he says what do you do and I'm telling him about you know what I do and and I tell him we use some biofeedback tools as well with the neurofeedback and what do you use and and I told him we used HeartMath. HeartMath is a bio, its a biofeedback device used to train heart rate variability, not heart rate, but heart rate variability. So he goes, "Oh yeah, we use that too." And I was like, "You do?" And so we started talking, and he explained to me that he got together with his fellow physicians in this town in Iowa of nine thousand people. 10 years ago, and decided their community were too highly medicated. And so they wanted to see if they could reduce the amount of medications consumed by the whole town. So they set up a program. They gave themselves like a, a year or 18 months or whatever in order to reduce the town's medication, just all meds, um, by... I don't remember what their numbers by. They hoped to reduce them like by a third or something, and so they started counseling them on you know healthy diet, get some exercise, and they they did whatever they could, and they bought some heart um, some heart math devices, and had them come in and use it, and they were amazed. They were able to reduce the entire consumption of this town of their, all their meds by. At least a third or two thirds or something Holy nine shit. nine months, yeah, yeah. It was like, whoa. So heart math.
1: He should be going to every municipality's health department and teaching that. Yeah.
2: And heart math should be in every home in this country. Sorry, no. I get excited, yeah. um, and so. There's a number of different tools that that we use. So, So you're not going to... Neurofeedback is gaining tremendous popularity, and there's a lot of small home-use devices. Not quite the same effects, but it'd be better than nothing. But... Every home could buy a heartmath unit, attach it to their phone. It's 149 bucks. If you get it before Christmas, it's 129 bucks and everybody in the family can use it and you do it every day or you do it three times a week. That is one of its best uses is um, high blood pressure is to help regulate high blood pressure. So they always say no salt. Well what about heartmath?
0: So, how does heart math help with the blood pressure?
2: So, um, heart math trains heart rate variability, which is the the if you like if you're hooked up to like an EK EKG. Um, You see a heart rate, ideally, you want these rhythms to be very nice and rhythmic, right? And about the same amount high as they are down low, if you drew like an imaginary line in the middle. But most of us, you hook us up to heart math, and especially the first responder community is going to be like jagged and not not nice and slow and rhythmic and synchronous. And so the goal of heart math is to do that. And the way to do that is is syncing up um, the heart rate and the breath rate. Now, I'm not very good at, the, at doing heart math through breathing, because if you breathe nice and slow and deep and even, you can do pretty good on it. I do it better through visualizing, just in my head. But there's games, and by playing the games, you regulate the heart rate variability and the goal is high coherence of the heart rate variability you want it highly coherent because low coherence well zero coherence is a flat line and you're just dead (laughs) (laughs) there's other problems (laughs) yes i think maybe you
0: should
1: stop the heart math training at that point (laughs) so it's it's Actually, fascinating you brought that up. Something, I don't know if they did in your academy, Jeremy. Something they started doing, or they did in my academy um, twice a week was yoga. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, I hated it, but I didn't. Like, it was one of those, like, I hated what we had to do. I didn't hate what I took away from it. Mm -hmm. One of those was different types of breathing techniques. They, you know, even in the basic, like, your, when we go on house fires, we have, like, our air packs that we use. They talk about conserving air, so different breathing techniques to slow your respiratory rate down to conserve more air. Um, it's no one thing in the fire service they have adjusted in the last few years is what we call heart tones now. There's not the just traditional old school bell. This is very loud, obnoxious, comes on in the heart, you know, in an instant. And instantly our bodies are just fight or flight you know Mm -hmm. heart rates up our adrenaline's up we're ready to go before we ever even know what the call is we are just at that state it's very pavlovish um Mm -hmm. you know where heart tones now are just like a soft tone that gradually increases to a mildly louder tone and then we get our call um something i've done just from some of the breathing techniques i picked up doing yoga is i've just conditioned myself um and it's and i still it it is a process that i have to I made a habit and stuff to focus on. But when our bells go off, no matter what the call is, I just start that breathing technique mm-hmm. that we learned in yoga. Just that's you know, it's not a massive problem solver, but it's just something I've done to bring my heart rate back down. And especially and I did it when I was uh going through my training, like my field training as a medical on the job because the bells would go off, and I'd instantly become a nervous wreck. i would just like, "Oh my god, what's this call? What am I going to have to do? What could, what could be going on?" You know, and my FTO was like, "Chill the fuck out, dude." <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it it was something that I I did. Now it's just it's second nature, it's habit to me. Just you know, but not everybody it's does fine. that. Not everybody's had that opportunity.
0: No, I, we did not do yoga in my academy class way back in the dark ages. <laughs> yoga wasn't a thing. We, we did some deadlifts.
1: <laughs> yeah, so when, if, you, if you were to look at, you know, say, Jeremy's heart rate, you know, just realistically, like Jeremy's heart rate versus mine all day, you would probably see those more in him. Those bells are going off, heart rate spike, and depending on what the call is, it may be maintaining for a lot longer and then coming back down. Where I would guess if someone like mine or, say, someone just like you of equal body fat and shape, everything else, utilizing those techniques I've... You could see it not as big as spikes.
0: Um, Well, there's also some variation in that. So if you're talking about me as opposed to you, there's a vastly different range of time on the job. So I've been conditioned to those bells and all of that stuff, so it may not affect me the same way because
1: I've heard them so many times. Um, We're seeing a lot of 50-year-olds have heart attacks at those bells
0: yeah well and those bells it's that's there's been research on the bell it actually does cause constriction in the heart and over time it you know it's detrimental to long-term health
2: wow
1: yeah i mean just picture a school bell in a small brick building just loud as hell
2: I know I watch yeah. Chicago Fire.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well you know everything
0: there is to know about our job then. I mean, that's exactly how the fire department is.
2: I thought so. Yeah.
0: I've done plenty of undercover work <laughs> with the police department just so you know.
2: <laughs> I yeah, just wanted to get yeah. that in.
1: But it's 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 not nice. Like, you know, it's Well, I watched Frasier a whole bunch as a kid, so <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> Bringing it in. <laughs> Well, like my problem is too is I'm I'm such a heavy so like we my station still has and what we call an open bunk room where it's just seven or eight beds and we all just sleep there together. Oh boy! Um, so, so on top of Kalen snoring, God. <laughs> but um, so and it's all cinder block walls. Um, it's not a very big room, and uh, the bell for in there, I have to sleep right next to it, otherwise I won't wake up because I'm such a heavy sleeper. It is approximately four feet above my head against the wall that my head is against while I sleep.
2: Oh my gosh. (laughs) I wanted to, um, you you brought up yoga, and so one of the things, um, one of the big things that yoga does is it increases vagal tone. Did we talk about this? Uh,
0: I don't think we did.
2: So the vagus nerve, which is the 10th cranial nerve, goes down from the brain, from the occipital lobe, down the neck, to the heart, to the gut. So it connects the gut, the heart, and the brain, the three brains. And things that we do that increase vagal tone increase resilience in the body, being and resilient in the good way of being strong and flexible and able to shift and take a hit and bounce back, those kinds of things. Um, Neurofeedback increases vagal tone. Yoga increases vagal tone. Biofeedback increases vagal tone. Um, So those things, yoga is spectacular. Because it hits everything, between the physical movement, the breathing, the sound. It hits all the senses to really enhance vagal tone. Yoga is the one thing that rivals neurofeedback, but it takes longer. So if you could do 20 years of yoga, that would be equivalent to a round of neurofeedback. Semi-equivalent.
1: I wonder mm-hmm. if vagal maneuvers are as effective on them. I just wonder. I, I wonder. So, we have, for example, like when someone is in a lethal heart rate, when it's way too fast, we have what we call vagal maneuvers where we make them, we tell them to like bear, like bear down like they're trying to poop themselves. Essentially, it's what we We're like, hey, poop your pants. And they're like, what? And we're like, poop your pants. A lot of times, it will work. It will... Basically, trigger that vagal nerve and their heart rate will just drop from two hundred and fifty to one hundred and twenty, just like that. Oh. I want. Won- I wonder if, if by building that resiliency, if you if it's still as effective. Just curious, brain working. <laughs> um, I I wouldn't see why it wouldn't be. Huh. I mean, I don't know the. We're gonna have to find somebody else that's really smart and invite yeah. them. like hey, we're not <laughs> gotta, gonna do a whole hour with you. We just got to ask you one question. <laughs> just one question.
0: That could be a Zoom call. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just send an email. That's that's fine.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. No, the whole twenty years versus. I never thought about that way.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I can tell you. I mean, my experience with it, because I mean, we did what. Uh, not that many. Yeah. Maybe,
1: Maybe 16-ish? Yeah. He's still a dick. Could you do some more?
2: Oh, he was lovely. <laughs> See?
1: What we call an act? <laughs>
2: I'm Works a, great. I'm a nice guy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, but from my perspective, like, I mean, so for me, I went and did the first, you know, session, and I think it wasn't very long. I mean, I think I probably got more than six minutes, but, you know, that's just because... Say it. Yeah. Say it. Because you're tough. Yeah. yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm manly. No. But I will tell you this. I almost fell asleep driving home because it just, it saps your energy. Like, because it's like a, it's a workout. And so you get tired. So, but I noticed probably not immediately, but fairly shortly after that i started to sleep better i was able to focus a lot more like because at the time that i went in i was like i said i was studying for the captain's test and i would read the same page three four five times and not remember what was on the page then i have to go and do it again do it again and by the time we were done it was i was reading and retaining like how did your sleep change at the station because it's so
1: obviously so inconsistent. Yeah. Like, what were you noticing there? Any the, difference really?
0: Yeah. The biggest thing was I was able to fall asleep a lot faster. Okay. So it didn't affect whether or not I woke up when the bells went off, but it was definitely able to sleep a lot faster, and I felt like I was actually getting sleep. Better not, quality. Yeah. Not like I would. I wasn't waking up like just exhausted still. You know.
1: I'm curious because I've always, and I've joked with Jeremy about this, but I don't have a problem falling asleep. I never have, but it's not in a good way. It's because I've point pushed my body to the point of exhaustion where I'm like, "Oh, sleep now. It's never been like, I've never had this set schedule of like, oh, it is now 10 p.m. I shall sleep for eight hours and wake up at 6 a.m. And especially with our line of work. It's like, oh, you get some sleep here and you get some sleep there and you piecemeal it together. And hopefully you get five to six, seven hours in a 24 hour period. And then when you don't, you know, you come home and like like I did a little bit this morning and then slept for a couple hours because I was tired and then wake up. And it's it's never been an issue of falling asleep for me, but that doesn't mean it's always because I've done it in a healthy way. It's just eventually yeah. my body's like, go screw yourself and you're just going to sleep.
0: Well, I think for you, the biggest thing needs to be schedule regulation.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, it, you laugh, but I'm dude, I'm telling you like, so whenever I'm not at the station, we're not turning this episode into me again no we're not i'm not doing it i'm not doing it Somehow I mean, you, I you t- tried to have a therapy session earlier but we'll let that one slide um well, there's so
1: many questions i'm like i just i just want to pick and pick and pick and well, yeah because it's like the perfect outlet yeah it's so thank you but
0: <laughs> no schedule regulation man i mean that helps a lot of me okay it is 10 o'clock it's time to go to bed and because you know as well as I do, you know, with our job, circadian rhythm doesn't exist at the station. I mean, it's just trying to stick to that is, it's not feasible. So, if you can do it at least the two days that you're off, or, you know, the one day that you're off or whatever, it it will hold benefits for you. Because any I'm with him. Yeah. Any sense of schedule like that, because, I mean, and look, in reality... When you're doing those two hour naps or three hour naps or whatever at odd times, you're not really getting good sleep. And what do we know about not getting good sleep? What does that lead to later on down the road?
1: Diabetes.
0: No. It leads to more mental problems. Sure does. And I mean, because your brain is not processing.
2: Yeah. If there's no rest and repair, there's there's gonna be chronic wear and tear.
1: If you were the chief of a fire or police department would and I'm guessing let's let's look 20 years ahead in these careers mm-hmm. could you see neurofeedback being a mandated treatment absolutely
2: i know yes a mandated treatment but i would use it for prevention
1: like because... like almost in the academy type thing like
2: in an academy setting so I'm not really familiar with the academy setting.
1: When you first come on the job.
2: Yeah. And I would use it, I mean, aren't there things that you have to do, like a regular part? Um, aren't there requirements you have to meet? You have to There's... do CEUs, don't yeah. you? Or... Mm-hmm. or. Um, run certain drills or things like that just to keep you practiced and and up and on those things right yeah well we talk about all the time about
1: like how many times we say the same things we do for our physical health we have to do for our mental health yeah how is it any different than if, if it's a physical requirement why not have a mental requirement
2: right so every six months you should go in and and have 15 neurofeedback sessions done and there should be some biofeedback devices around so that you can use those on your downtime at the station house. So somebody's doing dishes, right? Somebody's cooking. Somebody's doing whatever. You're, on, you're doing heart math or you're running CES or you're doing the Muse. Yeah. So it, it should be a part of maintenance training for prevention. Because you guys are constantly layering more shit on top of previous shit. And that's not a good outcome.
1: Yeah. Is that fine?
0: I like that point of using it as prevention. Because that's what have we talked about a million times. How do we keep people from getting to the point that, you know, we've all got to. We need something preventative. What are we going to do? What? why not Ta-da. add that into it that yoga freaking you know mental health checkups even
2: you know there's um
1: we do physicals yeah why not do mentals that's what we're gonna call it, mentals. mentals, mentals.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> i'm gonna let you
0: talk to <laughs> talk to the brass about that one
2: <laughs> there's um you know there's a lot of other supportive, healthy interventions. Um, I don't know much about aromatherapy and stuff, but frequencies. We're, I mean, most of our body is liquid, right? Between mm-hmm. blood and stuff. There's and and that's very responsive to sounds, frequencies. So um, I've got some some issues in the office with with the walls are too thin. There's not enough. Um, um,
0: Insulation. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So um, I've been approached by people wanting to come in and they, they use different sounds that are, that they use in like bullpens and stuff like that. But they use these sounds that emit certain tones so that you can block out, you don't hear stuff. It's supposed to be a.
0: Like um, a white noise thing, kind of. Yeah.
2: But I, I won't, I'm not ready to do that because people with a trauma history are hyper reactive to certain tones and i don't know if your tones might be in the four to six band and yours might be in the seven to eight band and so and you don't know and so i can't have tones being emitted and having somebody coming in for training and by the time they went go from the waiting room into my office are already um triggered Right, just because of this tone that maybe they don't even hear or notice.
1: We uh, so like just in our in our, we have the bells that go off overhead, and in each vehicle there's a computer and it gives us all of our information on a call when we we get a call and it makes a little. Well, it's off of emergency, isn't it? That tone, that, you know what I'm talking about on the CAD. Yeah, I know the tone yeah, I you're think talking it's, about. I think it's off of the show emergency. Did you ever watch that? No. Or who who are the two guys? the squad the old yeah I it's like an roy old, and somebody yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that show. I, yeah it's the tone off that show is what it is and uh it's just a beautiful a to a d because i was blessed with perfect pitch i guess um but like anytime i ever hear those like combinations just out in the public wherever it may be i'm instantly just like where's go?" just instantly so when you say that like it's, I don't know. maybe it is a trauma response. I don't want to call it like it's a bad thing, but it's, just, it's a sound that will instantly take me to a place. Even if it's for a second where I'm like, oh yeah, I'm not at home. Printers. Oh. It's printers. printers for me. Yeah. Because oh. every time we get a call at the station, the printer goes off too. Sometimes, usually right before the bells. Mm-hmm. Like maybe a full second before the bells go off, mm-hmm. a printer will go off. Yep.
2: So that's, but but that's more like a Pavlovian response that yeah. you you tie it to that kind of thing. Yeah. But I'm talking about an actual trigger. Okay. So kind of like like smells, right? Our olfactory system. It's the first system online, um, and you know you can smell something. Maybe it's like cinnamon cookies, and you think of your grandma's kitchen, or you smell, you know. Klein had a, a woman, and it was the cologne that her attacker had on. And so she smells that smell, and there's a triggered response. So it is a trauma response. But those sounds can be used um, in a positive way. I had a, a woman come in, probably 60s, had been on Xanax for 20 years, was trying to get off Xanax, and and getting off a um um what's that class of drugs
0: benzo, Is Thank that you. A benzo? Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a benzo
2: yeah so benzo withdrawals super ugly y- I Yes. i know if... yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah benzo withdrawal super ugly so neurofeedback's very helpful if you're titrating off drugs cuz it's helps supporting these changes in the brain as you're coming down off this drug. So she came in specifically to get off the Xanax. And she had been titrating down. She'd gotten to a point where she couldn't cut any more off. And so she came in. We did um, maybe about 20, 25 sessions. She had done tremendously well. She had this last tiny little sliver she was on on her Xanax. And she had signed up for a workshop in Colorado with a sound therapist. Maybe Jonathan Goldman. can't remember his name. But anyway, so I have these beautiful maps of her brain of these 25 sessions I did. And so there was just this one little thing we were trying to work on just last little bit. She went. She was gone for about two weeks on this workshop. She came back, and, and she said, I'm doing so much better. And I said, well, that's great. I hook her up, and it was like, holy cow. You look spectacular. You don't need to come back. And that sound therapy after that neurofeedback, because the neurofeedback primed her. After that bit of sound therapy, she looked great. Off her Xanax. Good to go. Holy shit. So (laughs) there's, when I have, um, and I train myself since COVID, I've been training myself about once a week. just just because I need to maintain I need to be resilient and life is just tougher these days everywhere everything so um um one of the things I do if if I have a poor night of sleep which doesn't happen often but my dog gets sick or the house shakes with these violent thunderstorms or something um if I have a big day coming I've got I've got an app on my phone, and what I do is I turn on some gamma frequency. Gamma's about 38 to 42 hertz. It's a very fast frequency. Gamma's a very organizing brainwave pattern, and it's very alerting, so it's not something you want to do at you know, 10 o'clock at night because it's more activating. But gamma is the frequency of, you know, when you have like an aha moment, you're thinking about something or you working on a puzzle and you see where how it fits kind of thing nanoseconds before you see it, before that aha there's a wave of gamma that washes over the brain and it's a very organizing frequency and so I turn on I do 20 minutes of gamma um, in the morning while I'm getting dressed and I do really well in the day even though I'm, I was tired because I got woken up but I know my brain and I, am I've trained my brain for 17 years. And so I know that 20 minutes of gamma, a couple mornings a week is good for me, but I wouldn't recommend that to anybody just to go do just that's word of caution. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, you have the experience to do that and know what's going on,
2: right? right so. right but there are um devices that can do that so you you just and i i, I don't know where we are time wise and stuff but i i did want to say you 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 voiced a question earlier and that was so we've got all these problems what do we do about it um and i don't i don't have i do have a list of answers cuz i think all of these tools and devices should be utilized everywhere because I think prevention is the key. Um, meds should be the last line for, I think, most things because um, I think we need to get to the source. So we fix it, not just symptom symptomatic relief for the time being. Um, so... I do think there's stuff out there that we can utilize. I'm not quite sure how to do it. So I'm just trying to do my part. And so I would like to see other first responders um, to do whatever I could. And this was motivated by COVID. Um, And I would be happy to offer, you know, like 15 sessions at no charge, one at a time. Um so send him my way.
1: That's huge. We'll do. I yeah. feel you know like when we go do demos at school mm-hmm. and all the kids are like um so like one time like this or like what do we do with this and it's just like so many just scenarios and shit they're like we don't have the answers to these kids like shut up. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I feel with her. We do not say that. Like that's that's how <laughs> I feel. I'm just like, so like one time <laughs> like, <laughs> that's what I felt like this whole episode is that six year old at the at the kindergarten again. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, I think it would have
1: positive benefits for you. I mean a lot of things would have positive benefits yes. for you. Yes. But I've I've just been sitting here take believe it or not, as much as I've talked, still taking a lot in, and I'm just like Whoa. Like, yeah. yes. Like, just so many symptoms she's she has described and just so many, just a lot of the in-my-own-head shit that never comes out here. Just you don't see it work. And and that's another problem with me, too, is working so much overtime. Like, my work mind is my two-thirds of my lifetime instead of a third of my life. Mm-hmm. And so being able to bring this, have some sort of regulation and normalcy. And I, I hate using the word "normal" in any of our careers, because yeah. or our lives, because it's just like, what is? Are we setting it like Jeremy or the Kardashians? What's normal here? You know, like
2: <laughs> I like that <laughs> Jeremy or the Kardashians.
1: That's a, that's a pretty big leap. <laughs> well, but what is right? Like yeah. you're you, but everybody knows the Kardashians. Yeah, everybody strives to be the Kardashians. We want the money, we want the recognition, we want the the looks, the beauty, all that comes with it. Is that normal now? Like, what, you know, I don't know. I'd say no, but the money wouldn't be bad. So. Um,
0: yeah, no, but I don't think any part of that is normal. Any part of that lifestyle. So, that's just me.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that's like, I yeah, I hate, I hate to say you're right. So, I'm going to just assume that she said it. And, yeah, I think it would be very beneficial to me. <laughs> Oh, I
0: love it. I love it. Um, I do have one question, though, before we wrap up, and it hopefully it won't take you too long to answer it or it could spark another conversation, I don't know. But um, I'm curious about neurofeedback and TBI. So, like, dealing with someone with – because we know there's different types of TBI injuries. So with, like, we could say, like, a concussion or a concussed, type that's not the right term so like if you fall and smack your head
1: oh shit i have another question now
0: so that's different (laughs) than say like an ied yeah yeah, with that blast thing you know because it affects the brain differently right you understand what i'm saying yeah i'm just formulating it poorly um so is that does that require a different approach in neurofeedback and what's the results and
2: Hmm. So, neurofeedback does one thing, and one thing only, and that is neuroregulation. Okay. And there are different kinds of neurofeedback. We pretty much stick to the one. We've got access to a couple others. Um, And I have found over the years that it works pretty well. For most things, because the only thing I'm trying to do is enhance neuroregulation, and it does that beautifully. Whether this was an IED explosion or whether this was, you know, got bonked in the head with a basketball. Um, So there are, um, we can do a quantitative EEG, which is a full assessment. We can send that off to, people that are experts in reading and interpreting QEGs and they can give additional guidance if it's necessary. There's um, a couple of uh, patients we've worked with, with parts of their brain missing. Um, I would assume that makes
0: it more difficult.
2: Not really. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's um,
1: just regulating what's there.
2: Yeah. I mean, we are an amazing species, humans and our brains. Amazing. And our capacity for health and optimizing is incredible. Um, and we're not, we're, we're not there. We're not actively working daily, pushing towards our optimization. And we could. We need to work together more.
1: We've discovered CTE in the last, what, 15, 20 years?
0: Sure, yeah.
1: Is that about right? I think. Um, Yeah. So, we have just in the last couple years been able to really start to see it and diagnose it not autopsy-based. Not post-mortem. Yeah. Yeah. Um. As that develops, do we think we'll see? Or I guess. Hey, what do you know about that? Or do you do you think we'll start to see more neurofeedback in, like, if we're seeing earlier and earlier CTE? Would it be beneficial?
2: Would neurofeedback be beneficial for CTE? Um. So the honest answer is I'm not sure. Um but I I don't see how it couldn't be because I've seen it um I don't think it's capable of arresting an active organic process.
1: Like right? dementia as well. Right, right, okay. right,
2: right. But Um, What neurofeedback does is optimize whatever's there, whatever you got. So my hope, I I would say, might be to, if this person walks in with diagnosed CTE or dementia, is enhance quality of life for whatever time there is. So that they sleep better, they're less anxious, and they're generally happier and more relaxed as they move through their life, whatever that process is is doing. You know, I
1: I do wonder, and this will probably be long after we're dead and gone, but in theory, we only use a small percentage of our brains anyway. And When we think about dementia impacting on that small percentage that we already use, if we're starting to optimize what we don't... Mm -hmm. Does it level the playing field? I'm curious to see.
2: Good question. That is a good question. I'll
1: write a letter from heaven and see what's up. Please. (laughs) yeah.
0: Well, and also the brain's ability to, quote-unquote, heal itself. You know, like you talk about, you have patients that are missing pieces and they're still able to
1: function. It's so different than our physical. If we don't use it, we lose it, right? Yeah, Things atrophy. Like, all of a sudden, if we're... I hate to quote the movie Limitless, you know, (laughs) but it...
2: I haven't seen it. Oh, it's,
1: basically, he takes a pill, and all of a sudden, he can use all his brain, and he's smart, and he remembers everything. But, I mean, if if we start this at an early age, and there's consistency, and there's purpose to it, I'm curious to see. It'd be pretty cool.
2: Um, Norman Deutsch, neuropsychiatrist, he's, he's in Vancouver, I think, wrote a couple of books. But his first book was um, The Brain That Heals Itself spectacular book Um, he spoke at one of our neurofeedback conferences several years ago and in that book he writes stories and it's not neurofeedback but it's amazing stories of the capability of the brain to heal itself with appropriate interventions I mean they had cameras inserted in somebody's mouth so that they could see because their eyes didn't work um they could see with their tongue i mean what we are capable of as species is beyond belief
1: yet we do some of the dumbest shit
2: (laughs) we do we do (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: that's fair that's fair so yeah that's insane
2: big knowledge gap right
0: yeah well we talked about that earlier you don't know what you don't know and then how do you even know to ask the question yeah so yeah
1: we need her on like every episode now (laughs) like and so for every guest we have just have her like go after him
0: (laughs) (laughs) well final thoughts james
1: i i'm damn near speechless from this i just just the things that i've like, the loose ends I've kind of tied, I guess, if that makes sense. Like, just more things make sense now. Mm-hmm. Um, and out of out of all the – so many times we've talked about, like, you have to find the thing that works right for you. But it's really hard to sit back and say for our line of work that this isn't the shining star of, of what we need for our brains. Um, so I, I can't thank you enough for coming on here and letting me play the six year old kindergartner asking you all the <laughs> <laughs> weird questions. Cause that it's just, it's been fascinating for me.
2: Cool. Thank you.
1: Laura, final thoughts.
2: Um, I just so appreciate the opportunity. Um, this is stuff that's near and dear to my heart. I love talking about it. I can obviously go on ad nauseum about it. Um, and so thank you. I, I, I really appreciate it. So, well, thanks. thank you. And for, it's been fun. It's, it's been, been a blast. Thank yeah.
0: You. yeah. Thank you so <laughs> much I'm for calling.
1: My friends
2: and be like, guess what? Guess what I learned <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, are
0: you out of Facebook jail yet? Though? I am yeah. out of Facebook jail. So, you're not going to call anybody. You're just going to post it. So, Laura, thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate it. Um, and, like we end every episode, if you are struggling, reach out there are resources out there this one if you are interested um in pursuing that let us know i, I can put your contact info in the okay. description if you're sure. fine with that um so yeah the how to get in touch with laura is will be on the on the video description so um we're gonna clear your schedule
1: <laughs> she
0: said one at a time people <laughs> Don't do the typical fireman thing and mess it up for everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, yeah, if you are struggling, reach out. If you know somebody that's struggling, let them know the resources are out there. Let them know that you care and take care of yourselves. We'll see you next time. Thanks.